0: You are now listening to MacroDose. Hello and welcome to MacroDose, a podcast hosted by me, James Meadway, that brings you your weekly fix of everything economics in a quick 15-minute roundup. Each Wednesday morning, we bring you the key stories making the news and the analysis you need to make sense of them. On today's episode, we'll be taking a look at First, as the British government's debt grows bigger than national income for the first time since 1961, how worried should we really be? Second, we'll look at the Bank of England's disastrous but predictable decision to raise its interest rate to 5%. And finally, some listener responses to last week's call-out. What are the other economics podcasts you keep an eye on? Time for our first story. To begin with today, I want to take a quick look back at last week, and the updated figures from the Office for National Statistics that showed inflation remained consistently high last month, flatlining at a, quote, deeply worrying 8.7%, exactly the same figure as the previous month. This was even worse news than I and most economists had expected. If you'd heard last week's show, you'd found me predicting a minor decline in the overall rate of inflation and a slight increase in the Bank of England base rate of interest. What we actually got was no decline in the main measure inflation and a substantial increase in the Bank of England's base rate, up from 4.5 to 5%. Despite general expectations that inflation was likely to fall slightly in the year up to May, the updated figures show price rises remain stubbornly high. As we mentioned on last week's show, inflation is still being driven by the rapidly rising cost of food, but we also saw rapid increases in a host of other areas, such as second-hand cars, flights, live music events and computer games, amongst other things, which have kept pressure on inflation as a whole and have held up overall consumer prices, even in the face of falling energy costs. I'll talk more about that Bank of England decision in our second story today, but it's fair to say that a 0.5% increase is bad news for basically everyone, and will likely push the economy closer to a recession over the coming months. This is, of course, actually the bank's intention. We also had, on top of that, a wave of media hysteria around the news that the government's own debt was now bigger than the total UK gross domestic product. In other words, the government owes in debt more than the entire value of what the UK economy actually produced last year. This is the first time this has happened since the early 1960s, when the government was paying down its Second World War debts. So well over a decade after the austerity programme was launched by the 2010 coalition government, with the excuse that it was necessary to bring debt under control, it is very obvious that we've gone backwards on that supposed goal. If it wasn't dead already, this news should put the final nail in the coffin of the myth that austerity can reliably reduce debt-to-GDP ratios. But I'm not sure this fact is reaching all, or any, corners of the House of Commons. Whilst the Tories gather dust mulling over plans for a new wave of austerity, we have a Labour Party that is becoming fixated on their so-called fiscal rules. These have not been spelled out too precisely, but we do know that they include a focus on that measure of debt falling at the end of a five-year period in government. And remember, these are self-imposed rules, which Labour is seemingly prioritising over a genuine response to the real-life crisis we're facing, whether it's cost-of-living crisis or climate change. Putting these two stories together, whilst there aren't many upsides from high inflation, one for the government, at least, is that a higher rate of inflation does help to more quickly erode the burden of its debt. Debt has to be paid in money, and because inflation pushes up prices, more money is moving through the economy as a result, and this means more money will also now be flowing back to the government in the form of tax revenues. That, in theory, means repaying the government debt gets easier when inflation is higher. VAT is a really obvious example of this effect. Because the VAT charge depends on the price of the thing being bought, more expensive things have bigger VAT bills attached to them. Which means that when inflation tends to make everything more expensive, VAT revenues tend to rise. The result is more money coming into government as a direct result of inflation. The underlying principle here is the difference between real terms values versus monetary values. In the same way that inflation reduces the real value of your income, since you could now only buy less for the same amount of money, the same idea applies to government debt. The same amount of debt is now worth less in real terms because of inflation. Slightly higher inflation and consistent economic growth is how Britain fairly rapidly was able to reduce the real burden of its Second World War debt. So, given all these factors, does that mean that government debt is nothing to worry about? Well, not quite, unfortunately. First, there is one big complication here. About a quarter of UK government debt is what is called index-linked to inflation, so that when inflation rises, the amount the government has to pay to its lenders holding this kind of debt also goes up. That raises the amount of interest payments the government has to make, as do rising interest rates in general. Total government interest payments to its creditors this year are likely to come to around £100 billion, or about the same as the education budget. As a share of GDP, those interest payments are as high now as they were shortly after World War II. If... As after World War II, the underlying economy was recovering rapidly and motoring along with record growth rates, this really wouldn't be such a problem. Economic growth and slightly higher inflation would rapidly reduce the debt burden, but obviously that isn't actually happening now. The British economy is in a uniquely bad place amongst the major developed countries. Former member of the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee, Andrew Posen, recently argued in the Financial Times that we should really now be thinking about Britain as a so-called emerging market country. In other words, like a much poorer, less developed country. His basic point is correct. The 15 years since the financial crash, especially the 13 years since the austerity programme began, have seen underlying economic growth, that's productivity growth, dwindle away in Britain. It's not been particularly great anywhere in the developed world, but Britain has performed dramatically worse than other large developed economies. Our collective borrowing from the rest of the world, that's not just government borrowing but all of us, has risen over this period of time, in what amounts to a collective attempt to maintain our living standards that has actually mostly worked to the benefit of the richest people here. Now, Posen argues against austerity and for tax rises on the richest to pay for quote significant wage increases for NHS workers, teachers and lecturers, transport workers and so on. He thinks public investment should be increased in energy and public transport. He thinks the benefits system is too, quote, mean and creates, quote, perverse disincentives to work. More controversially, he thinks house prices should be allowed to fall and private lenders made to carry the costs of bailing out borrowers if needed. This is what he thinks a stabilisation programme for an emerging market economy might look like, and he's basically right. In theory, looking to redistribute money to the wider population using tax rises on the rich and rebuilding those essential systems are all good ways to set a floor to future economic collapse. Unlike most emerging market economies, Britain is actually a rich country. Its greatest remaining strength, really, is that we are able to tax the wealthy here properly if we decided to actually do that. But what should frighten all of us, however, is something Posen highlights, which is the quote political impossibility of such a programme here in Britain today. This is worse than just the Tories, who rarely contemplate raising taxes to make the wealthy pay a fair share. It's about the whole set of established economic institutions we have, from the Treasury to the Institute of Fiscal Studies, that given the sets of problems we face, won't consider taxing wealth, but will instead offer endless cycles of panic about debt and lurches back towards demands for an implementation of austerity. And again, we have a current Labour leadership which seems to buckle under those pressures even before it's anywhere near being actually in power. All of this together points to a deep, systemic failure of the kind we've not seen in this country, in very different circumstances, since the 1970s or further back, the 1930s. The problem here isn't so much that the debt has grown too big, it's that the economy it sits on is too weak and that weakness is best seen in low household incomes and obscene levels of inequality, both of which government could be addressing directly. It's not just that the immediate problems are hard, is that we don't have institutions collectively capable of addressing them properly. What it points to is the need for an anti-systemic thinking and an anti-systemic movement, one that can cut through the failures of the mainstream. Right, onto our second story of the week. And as promised, I want to return briefly to interest rates and the decision of the Bank of England to hike its base rate to 5%, up a whopping 0.5% from its previous level. We covered the bank's logic behind this process on last week's show, but it was helpfully reiterated by the government adviser Karen Ward on the BBC's Today programme last week. Interest rate rises are supposed to induce a recession, which in turn leaves workers frightened of unemployment and so less likely to demand a pay increase. This is the logic of what's happening here, and I've spelled it out for you, and now you have a government advisor doing the same thing. Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey spelled out the same thinking in his own BBC interview, just after the bank's Monetary Policy Committee took its decision on those interest rates. The bank, he claimed, are particularly concerned about wages rising rapidly, forcing companies to then put up prices in the dreaded so-called wage price spiral. But even looking at the Bank of England's own report of inflation, published alongside the announcement to explain its decision, it's clear that this isn't actually what's happening here. The June report from the Monetary Policy Committee that decides those interest rates says, and I quote... The pickup in annual pay growth since the time of the May report had been concentrated in higher-paying sectors, such as financial and business services. Pay growth in lower-paid sectors, like wholesaling, retailing, hotels and restaurants, had been broadly flat. In other words, they're admitting here that there isn't really a wage-price spiral, except perhaps in those higher-paying sectors like financial services – And why are financial services doing so well? Well, because interest rates are rising, driving up returns to financial products, which in turn lifts bankers' bonuses. It's not so much a wage-price spiral as an interest rate-bankers-bonus spiral. For everyone else, pay has been, I quote, broadly flat. It's no wonder, given this, that the Monetary Policy Committee's decision to raise interest rates was not unanimous. There are nine members of this committee, including the Governor of the Bank of England and four Bank of England senior staff, plus four independent experts. Two of those independent experts, Swati Dingra and Silvana Tenreo, voted to pause the hikes and over the last 18 months or so, both have consistently voted against the rest of the committee on the need for hikes. They have offered two reasons for this. First, that interest rate rises take a long time to feed through, which is basically correct. Unless the raise is really dramatic, it takes a bit of time for everyone to adjust their behaviour to a smaller rise, eventually borrowing and spending less. Second, they think that inflation is going to ease off anyway over the next few months, which I also think is broadly right. The British retail consortium's figures for shop prices, out on Tuesday this week, show that shop price inflation overall is coming down, and that for some essentials, like milk and eggs, prices are even falling. The world price of wheat, for example, is down on what it was 12 months ago, and this should eventually feed into domestic prices in the UK. What should concern us is that even if the huge price increases from last year aren't repeated, the road ahead is going to be extremely rocky. We've already covered on the show how a strong El Nino event in the Pacific Ocean this year is set to disrupt harvests around the globe, provoking shortages and pushing up prices. But climate change in general is having this effect. As climate campaigner Leo Barassi pointed out in an excellent Twitter thread, the prices of staples, including sugar and rice, are now soaring again because of floods in India and drought across the Mediterranean, respectively. These sorts of extreme weather effects aren't going to go away. As climate change worsens, they will become more pronounced. Again, as I said on last week's show, there's no interest rate rise in Britain that will change the price of wheat after wildfires in Canada or avocados after droughts in Central and South America. It's time to expand our understanding of inflation as a global phenomenon and begin to think beyond interest rates as a simple fix-all for rising prices. In a warming world of harsher living conditions, we don't need a cruel and ultimately fruitless efforts to push our economies into a recession. Let's all hope that this is the last we see of interest rate rises, though, unfortunately, I strongly suspect that it won't be. And finally, a quick note to close today's show. On last week's episode, we responded to a listener question from Tony about potential free-market podcast alternatives to Macrodose, for those of you who like to get a good diversity of economic opinions. We asked for your listeners' suggestions, and we've had a few great responses. Maybe the most apt is from listener Pearl, who got in touch to recommend the FT News Briefing as a decent listen that doesn't make hefty assumptions about your prior knowledge, although admittedly it's not vehemently right-wing. Pearl also chucked in another new podcast from the FT, Unhedged, which launched just a few weeks ago, promising, and I'm quoting from their blurb on this, that each sharp and punchy 15-minute episode will offer a global outlook, industry insights, and a witty and unique take on the latest markets and finance news. An economics podcast offering sharp and punchy insights in handy 15-minute weekly episodes. It'll never catch on. As always, thanks everyone for writing in. We're still looking for many more listener questions. So if you've got a burning ask around inflation, interest rates, growth, degrowth, or anything else, please do get in touch. We're at patreon.com slash macrodose on Spotify. And as always, you can also contact us using the link in the show notes. Thank you for listening to today's show. Macrodose is a Planet B production. If you enjoyed the show and you'd recommend it to friends, please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find all our episodes, including our bonus interview content, on our Patreon at patreon.com macrodose.